You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. I have a praise report. It has been a long journey for many of us in the age of COVID-19. And my personal praise report is that this Friday, I will be getting my hair cut for the first time in over two months. Now, under most circumstances, this would be a ridiculous testimony. Who cares? Just go get your hair cut. Go to the salon. Go to the barber. But no, as you all know, I am sitting in a seat of glory right now. Some of you wish you had access to because for some of you guys, you still can't go to the barber. But we can. Thanks to the great state of Texas. Now, I have a few major bullet points to get to this uh, this intro before we get to this week's podcast, which, by the way, is going to be very fascinating. I will try not to take too long to get through them, but I think they're exciting enough to give honorable mention to number one. We are moving Bride Ministries to Houston. Yes, that's right. I said it. Houston. Uh, there's the story behind this, a lot of confirmations. Um, folks, we have been in Dallas for a few years, and we love Dallas, and we have prayed for Dallas, and uh, Dallas has been good to us. However, uh, God has some major transitions moving. And so that transition will not only involve my wife and I personally, but also the ministry, because as it turns out, wherever I go, kind of like, you know, the ministry goes as well. And so when we get to Houston, which will be end of this year and the very beginning of next year, where we're, we're, we haven't yet been able to iron those details out, that is when you will begin to see us move on some of our agendas, such as the agenda to have a ministry training center. Uh, I believe that what we will do is simultaneously operate our church from that place. We're going to have a uh, largely interactive internet stream, but we are also going to move into a modality where we are filming in front of a live audience. And so and so we have vision to pull that off once we get into Houston. We're going to be looking for a place to build that as well. As the survivor housing project we have been talking about for years and saving money towards. And so Houston is going to be the location of a lot of things that, that are really pushing forward the agenda God has for this ministry. I also want to let you know that we are working diligently on the self-deliverance portal project here at Bride Ministries. It's really going to be a first of its kind as far as I'm aware now. I'm always open to correction here, but but we're we're building with the self-deliverance portal. I, I have not encountered anything quite like it yet. And what we are going to be doing is taking all of our prayer resources, uh, particularly the deliverance tools. I am going to be recording them, putting them on pages uh, with instructions on how to use them. And so as you want the deliverance, what you will do is you'll work through the page, 
name the issues that are going to be needing to be addressed, and then click play, and I will pray our prayer resources over you from your iPhone, your iPad, or your tablet or phone or computer, right? And, 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 and in this way, people will be able to partake of our deliverance tools uh, being catered to them anywhere in the world at any time. Not only that, we are building assessments as well. And so when you get into this area of our website as we build it, you will be able to take some quizzes, answer some questions, and our system will kick an email out to you and it'll basically say, these are the prayers that you use for these issues. Bop, 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 bop. And so it is going to be very user-friendly deliverance. And I cannot wait to get the glory stories and the testimonies. Uh, we are just very excited about God's agenda to set his people free. And this, this is something that we are going to make available free to the world through our platform. And so uh, just understand that when you are sowing into Bride Ministries, I mean, you're sowing into the free prayer resources, the podcast, the church, the, the classes, and all, you know, we, we even have prayer teams. If you need someone to pray for you at our ministry, we have that on our website, but we're going to be adding to that a deliverance portal. That said, I want to say thank you to all of you that continue to support us financially. And by the way, if you believe in what we are doing, our outreach is to survivors of satanic ritual abuse and government-sponsored mind control agendas, which we continue to do through this day. Uh, our agenda to train and raise up warriors for Christ, ministers that are equipped to deal with the highest levels of deliverance and inner healing needs. Go to our app, go to bridemovement.com and sow a seed. Sow a seed. Folks, I am going to pause right there. I think that's enough news for one one podcast. <laughs> so we're going to get right to it. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Well, folks, I am here on Discovering Truth with a new voice, and for those of you watching on YouTube, a new face. Uh, my guest today is named Benjamin Brody. And here's the thing, guys. I met this incredible gentleman uh, the last time that I was in Australia, and uh, I met him in Bendigo at Todd Hunter's church. And yeah. I was blown away because I am told that there is a person in Todd's church that God miraculously healed from autism. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow. And then I sat down with Benjamin and talked with him for a little while. And I got taken on this wild tour de France of reptilian this and Mars and autism and Illuminati. And I was just like, gosh, you have just described all of these pieces that I've been putting together for years around autism uh, that, that it just seems so far-fetched, yet it's there when we do the prayer work. And yet I'm sitting in front of someone saying, and God healed me from all of that. And so mm -hmm. folks, you are in for a real treat and an adventure today. With that said, Benjamin, welcome to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's really kind of exciting and surreal because I, I, I listen to the podcast all the time. 
And it's just kind of a bit of a surreal moment, just actually being a guest on it, on this on the show that I listen to all the time. So <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really stoked to be here. I'm really stoked to that um, people are going to get the opportunity to get some insight into what actually goes on um, inside the mind of someone with autism. Well, at least from my perspective, anyway, and and what what I've experienced of it. Now, now here's the thing, folks. Before Benjamin starts talking, we we have to ground out just a few things. Number one, autism is on the rise worldwide. Mm. Uh, at once upon a time, autism was very rare. Mm. Now it's becoming ever increasingly common, and mm. there's a question as to why. Some people have boiled it down to vaccines. And they've said, well, that's that. It's the vaccines that are doing it. That's the agenda. Uh, mm -hmm. What we're going to learn today is that it's a little more than that. And while yeah. I do acknowledge vaccines have a role in this whole conversation, uh, what we're going to learn is that it goes a lot deeper and a lot further. And Benjamin, with that said, you mm -hmm. know, you come into this conversation as a bloodliner, meaning that your family has importance in yes. the uh, framework of the enemy plan to destroy the world, kill people, yep. <laughs> and yep. beat, well, try to beat Jesus. Like, the devil's very confused. He thinks he can win. So, oh, yes. So, so, so let's talk a little bit about that. Your last name is Brody. So, so tell us, what is the background of your family? So Brody, Brody is a very heavy hitting name in the occult. Uh, it's not a widely known name, but as you're going to see from what the story I'm about to tell, whenever you've had something kind of fishy going on, particularly in the lead up to the 20th century, there was generally a Brody waiting in the wings um, or just quickly leaving the scene <laughs> from all this all this bad stuff that happened. Um, and so uh, the Bro name Brody goes back about a thousand years. Um, the first mention of the, the name Brody was actually uh, in a charter request to William Wallace. So the guy from Braveheart. Uh, so the charter request was basically the Brody said, we are an ancient tribe. We own the land that we lay claim to and we are going to take it, whether you like it or not. And already it seems that at that time, um, Brody has had, carries enough reputation in that, that William Wallace, you know, the guy who paints his face blue and screams and runs with his sword is scared enough to actually just give the Brodies what they want. Mm. Um, and it should be noted that uh, they, the heritage they claim is uh, Pictish. So they come from a place called Murray. So Murray, before Scotland was like this big unified nation, it was split up into different parts. You had the highlands and then you had the midland, lowlands. And then in the middle, you had this place called Murray, which was the most powerful kingdom in Scotland. And so the, the original Pictish inhabitants of that kingdom, you know, held that land. They were the Aboriginals. Uh, they considered themselves the Aboriginals of Great Britain. They're the first people. But 
anyone who has done a study of British history would know that people weren't the first inhabitants of Great Britain. Um, you look at the ancient monoliths, Stonehenge, all that kind of stuff. There was very much a lot of activity that was not of human design in in um, Britain before the first settlers came. And so the first clue that we have of Brody heritage and what they claimed to be and what they were signing allegiance to is actually in their family crest, what you would call um, their coat of arms. So every, every clan had their own crest and every clan had their own protectorate um, animal sort of thing. So that's kind of like a team mascot, but a bit more spiritual, spiritually significant. You might have, you know, a deity or your spirit, a spirit animal, you know, um, adorned on your coat of arms. The Brodie's coat of arms is adorned with two giants, Gog and Magog. So the story of Gog and Magog is that they were the two last giants left alive in the land that they called Alba, um, but we call Great Britain. Um, and so the first human settlers had to defeat these two giants. Um, and claim the land. They, they wouldn't let anyone pass, they wouldn't let anyone live. Anyone who came onto the island would get eaten, essentially. Um, and so you have these two giants of ancient legend. They get defeated, but then the legend kind of carries on and continues um, through um, all kinds of different landmarks. You know, you have Giant's Causeway up in Scotland, connecting Scotland and Ireland. Uh, you have obviously Stonehenge, which is, yes, that's, that's our, there we go. So we've got the two giants on either side, Gog and Magog. Uh, you've got the, the family shield down below, which represents. Um, so what you'll notice straight away is that everything in the Brody coat of arms is in threes. So you have the three stars, and so that red triangle is like the represents the house. So you have the two above and the one below, um, and you have the three arrows um, that are bound in a hand, which is bound in a cord. And so in House Brody, you were you have this idea that they weren't harking back to the first settlers, they were trying to hark back all the way back to the original inhabitants, the giants. So that, that picture of the fist with the three arrows is actually a, there was a, it was a language that they, that they had in their coat of arms, like a, a picture graph of what they stood for. So the clenched fist of three arrows is actually a pledge of war with my three sons. So two giants on either side, a pledge of war, and then you have the shield with the house of Brody represented with the three stars. Um, and then you have the motto, unite. The idea was that the, the Brodies had pledged themselves to war 
to unite all of Britain under the giants again. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's your first clue about the kind of mindset that Abrodi came into and the kind of fearsome reputation that we had. Where does this connect to the Knights Templar? So the Knights Templar, so their, their claim to belong to this ancient race of Picts is debatable because it, if you look back at the older deeds to that land, it would actually belong to Knights Templar. It was one of their hideouts. So they had keeps, they had lands, they had, had all kinds of stuff. Like in the first thousand years after Christ, like the Knights Templar were established and became quite wealthy and quite widespread. Um, and so they had stations all in all areas of the then known world, um, including this outpost on Britain, which remember was settled by the, um, the Romans. So in all likelihood, the Brodies actually descended from uh, a mixture of the locals and these original Knights Templar. Okay. So the Knights Templar, and, it, and it's interesting because at some point, the Knights Templar, like the Pope gets suspicious of the Knights Templar and, and declares them heretics and starts hunting them down. The Brodies are, send out a message to the Knights Templar and offer them refuge. And so they go off into the hills of Scotland and there they disappear. And then later on you have the, you know, this, these Brodies sort of starting to get into more political scheming and manipulation from the background, kind of like what the Knights Templar did in Europe. Very interesting. Okay. So uh, your family line, these Brodies. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, clearly, they have a connection to giants. Now, these giants, we understand those are Nephilim. They're yes. Fallen groups that they have angelic seed in them. Yeah. Right. And uh, now they are working uh, mm -hmm. politically, uh, partnered mm -hmm. with Knights Templar is very interesting. You know, and for those of you that don't know this, they were uh, like original bankers in a way because yes. they would give like let you withdraw money in different places throughout Europe based on notes that they would give. So if you put your gold in Spain, you could go to the Britain, take a note to the Knights Templar there and take out your gold there and travel mm -hmm. safe. So they actually uh, became like, like bankers way back when, and that gave them power anyway. Yeah. So you guys are kind of commingling. Now, now there's something to do with uh, Mary Queen of Scots here. Yes. So Mary Queen of Scots was not a very popular person in Scotland, mm. believe it or not. But there was a, there was not very many people who were willing to stand up to her because she had the lovely nickname of Bloody Mary. She was, had a, had a habit of murdering people who looked at her funny. Um, <laughs> but anyway, there was a call to, um, call to actually rebel against her. Um, and the main guys who 
were the institutors of that were the Gordons, who were the neighbours. Like, so you've got all these different clans in Scotland. So you had, you know, you had your McDonald's and you had your Kennedys and you had all these kind of stuff. They own, they're all own their own patch of land. And in this feudal time, that's where, that's where we're at. Um, and so you have um, the Gordons want to overthrow the Queen and the Brodies being the manipulative people that they are want to back this in order to actually see an upset in the in the royal in the royal um succession so they they join forces they go into a battle they lose um but once once the queen realizes that the brodies are involved the the um the Lord of Brodie Land, um, uh, his name was Alexander Brodie at that point. Um, he got a pardon. As soon as she realized that, oh, it was, it's the Brodies here, he gets a pardon. The Lord of um, Gordon gets his head cut off. So you have this really weird thing where it, is this understanding is like oh you this these brodies get very special differential treatment even for treason um and that like even the queen is not willing to tick them off um for fear of what might come after in saying all of this you are illustrating just how much darkness is associated with the Brody line. Yeah. 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 Now, now now let me just grab a hold of this and ask the question. Mm. Okay. Because now we're moving through. I mean, this ultimately connects to your autism and the, yeah. The idea that there was actually an agenda behind your autism. Yes. So help us to understand that whole element. Yes. So as you can probably tell um, by the, the Gordons suddenly going extinct and then um, because of this play, the Stuarts actually became extinct as well. It only took them a hundred years, but then they couldn't produce an heir anymore. And so the, mm-hmm. the house had to shift the line of success, the line of succession was broken. These people are really deep into some really messed up magic to that really, really plays on high aim, aims at destabilizing high political power that they see standing in their way. And so for that kind of magic, you need dedicated people. Um, it's interesting that um, I've talked to a few people and there's, and the kind of experiences that I had when I was autistic kind of match a lot with what they understand of um, shamanistic rites of passage. So a shaman being a tribal magic user, um, you know, pl- more plugged into the spirit world than they are to the real world. 
hence the um, inability to um, socialize or pick up on cues or or anything like that you are essentially you are being rewired and purpose built to engage with the spirit first mm. And whatever, whatever spiritual forces, whatever purpose they have for you, the primary purpose of autism is actually to shut you off from the physical, to shut you off from human connection, to shut you off from uh, a sense of normality and to get you primarily focused on what's happening with the demons inside, with the spirit world, with the gaining um, the deeper insight uh, that's brain power that they need to engage with you on that extent. And so they hijack your brain to actually make you essentially a weapon in their hands. Wow. And so the, you see, as you can, as you'll see through this, um, this history um, of the Brodies, and it is quite detailed, but it's one of those things where you don't really get an opportunity to, a lot of the time to actually see behind the curtain you you hear about these shadowy families that that are pulling strings in the background and that kind of stuff but for the most part it's it's hearsay but this is actually historical record all this stuff you can actually go online now and look up the names and and the dates and actually line everything up yourself this is blatant uh, interference on display and and it's not and then, you know i tell you get something this detailed or this specific with some you know if you were to look up something like the rothschilds or something like that because but you can and so by looking into the strategies that they were using and the kind of like going through the roots and actually what they were dedicated themselves for like they were on a mission like every Brody knows their coat of arms really well. They can draw it off by heart. Mm. And there's no reason for that. Even people who are mildly interested in their family heritage knows the coat of arms and can draw it by memory. It's, it's one of those weird things that, you know, in a modern society, you think it would have died out. But for Brodies, like all the Brodies that I've met, there's this strange allure to the old, old roots and a strange allure to the history and a strange allure to keeping the memory of our people alive. And, th and they do talk like that. It's this idea that these are our people, you're a Brody. Those, those other people, they're outside, they're not us. And, and they can't think like us and, and they don't understand us. And there's the, it's, it's, it's one of those things where um, if you were to look at it in any other context, you'd think that this was weird. Like we're not an ethnic group. We're not a, we're not some kind of beset upon people or anything of like that. But there's this mentality of us versus them. And it's built on this thousand year history that we have in you know being this clan that lived in the shadows and couldn't let out too much information um and i think yeah just yeah painting the picture of the kind of environment 
that I grew up in and the kind of people that I interacted with and what I was taught and how to interact with people as well. Because this is the thing is that um, autism in itself is kind of like the weaponizing of this condition, but there are lots of markers in a family tree that fit that description. You might have one aspect or another aspect or something like that. Every now and then, it's kind of like with sheep, you you might have a black spot here, you might have a black spot there, all that kind of stuff, but then you'll have one that is jet black. And so you have one that has all the attributes uh, come together and, and all the all the different things are aligned in such a way that they are super sensitized to whatever that purpose that they've been um, collected for. Because there is a collection process. Okay, so now I want mm. you to begin unpacking some of this for us. So, you, so you're mm. born mm. and right out the womb, I mean, early childhood, mm. you are really, in the spirit world a lot well this is the thing when i was born i was quite normal with autism uh you you if you talk to people who have autistic children they will talk about a time where this child seemed really bright this child seemed really normal this child seemed to be developing in a way that was um healthy and they were interacting with the world and then suddenly one day they stop because because um, autism is not purely genetic there is a selection process and selection criteria required um, they the familiar spirits that come down the family line will be looking for particular characteristics um, one of the ones that I found is that they need to be children of technically minded. One parent must be really technically minded and the other must be very creative. Hmm. And, that, and the child at an early age will display um, characteristics of both. And so from, my, from what I've been told when I was very small, I could learn to add and count before I learned my colors. I was very articulate. I never baby talked, um, all that kind of stuff. I was, I was very, very, I was a very, very fast learner. And then one day when I was about two, th everything changed. I was shut off. I was very closed off. Huh. And this is why people think um, autism is it can't be genetic it's linked to the vaccines because they think something must have happened to my child to make them this way they didn't come out this way they didn't start this way something happened to them and we can't put our finger down on what it is but the thing is it's it's a it's a selection criteria and it's an abduction process and a traumatizing thing um to actually activate that weaponized state. So you're action. saying that by the age of two, a criteria had been established for you and you met it. Yep. And then therefore you 
past the selection process and you mm. are then drafted in, so to speak. Yeah. 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 Cause that's the thing they they, they need the best I can understand it um, from what I observed is that they need human innovation to actually advance. And who's they, are we talking about the hybrids and the fallen angels behind the scenes? Um, the fallen angels, they, they require innovation. So the hybrids have elements of humanity in them. And so that capacity to create and innovate um, is in, born into them, um, designed into them. Um, when you, if you were to think about the logistics of what a heavenly being is, they're created instantly. Uh, they're created fully functional. They're created with all the knowledge that they're going to have, and they're created with full mastery over the realm that they're in. Um, humans are not built that way. We don't have mastery over our realm. We, we, are, we are born and we develop. Uh, we start from an early stage and we grow up. That is something that demons don't do, or fallen angels, I should say, don't do. They don't grow, they don't develop. And so the innovation is hard for them. Like we have developed all kinds of ways to get around our world because we can't snap our fingers and appear on the other side of the world. You know, we need to invent things to actually um, overcome the limitation, the natural limitations that we have as humans, um, which is part of the creative process and part of the image of God that God has placed in us, which is actually what makes us so unique in the universe, is that we can actually, we can actually overcome what is set before us. So this is all very interesting, right? So, so let me just um, pause you there, right? Because I want to mm -hmm. introduce some ideas. So folks, I work with a lot of survivors of satanic ritual abuse, government-sponsored mind control agendas, Illuminati defectors, so on and so forth. One of the things that we have found is that they make composites all the time. And some mm -hmm. of these composites, they are born as ungodly offspring, spirit children type stuff. Some of them are created in labs and mm. you will have humanity of a person, like a piece of their soul that's been shattered, you know? And, and of course the Bible says the Lord restores our soul in Psalm 23. Why would God need to restore a soul that could never be broken? So the soul could be mm. shattered, right? Mm. And we find that they are integrated. And, and many times we find in the spirit world or in the other dimensions, laboratories, and there are scientists in the laboratories, and these scientists are like reptilian, but they yep. have human soul fragments that are woven into their design. So it's a reptilian entity with human intelligence, emotive capacity, and so forth. And they're like a composite being hybrid, super smart scientists. And we find that these things are developing all kinds of new technologies that we're trying to keep up with in the world of deliverance. Now, this is, this is, sounds very strange to some people, but here's the thing. Okay. Now I want to come back to two. At two years old, you go through a shift. You, you meet the selection yeah. criteria. Yeah. What are some of the experiences you begin to have going back and forth between the different sides of the veil? Well, it's, it's abrupt. Um, so 
the child needs to be broken quite quickly um, to prevent it from reaching out and getting help. Um, so there is an abduction. Um, in my case, it was an abduction by um, female demons, the incubus. Yeah. So a group of those took me um, and there was, yeah, took me to a place away. They, they wouldn't let me leave. They wouldn't let me, they were all over me all the time. Um, and the idea was that, you know, if you put a child through shock, they will separate. And once the separation is complete, then you have to lock them. So there was, yeah, it's hard to describe the kind of interaction that I had with them because although it was sexual, they kind of wanted to come off more as parental. So they're highly sexualized, you know, very physical, very forceful, but also at the same time, speaking very endearingly, um, trying to coddle me, trying to um, form a parental bond with them by any means necessary. They want to tie you, tie your soul in to whatever they're doing. And this is and then at two. This is at two. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So dozens of these creatures that are much bigger than normal humans, by the way, um, with a the soul of a small child, um, really, really getting quite physical and vicious with you. Now, just to help us understand, you know, mm. you're using the word physical. Mm. Do you believe that they actually pulled your physical two-year-old body out of earth time space to the realm that they were tormenting you in or do you think they pulled your soul out of your body into a realm that you experienced as physical once there well it's hard to say um as a you know as a two-year-old you can't really tell the difference mm. um and you wouldn't really be able to conceptualize your soul leaving your body at that point anyway Mm. So as far as you're concerned, everything that's happening around you is real mm. and you're, you're really there. Um, and so, and that's the thing is like, whether you were, I was physically there or whether it was just my soul taken out, I, the memories that I have and the trauma that I experienced doesn't seem to like that factor doesn't seem to, um, make a difference on the end result um and so so the first thing was to tie you in to lock you into their reality the next thing is to break you from humanity and that involved a human sacrifice so a person would be dragged in they would be slaughtered and then they would be served up to you and you would eat it so the idea was that if this process was repeated enough, you stop seeing people as people and start seeing them as pieces of meat. And that at that early stage where, you know, you can't really um, comprehend 
you know, saying no or anything like that, you will cave in eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have what the end result is that you have these deep, really confusing connections with these fallen angels and a really, really detached view of the flesh and blood humans around you. You know, to you, they are just flesh and blood. You've seen their insides. You've seen them dead on a slab. You've seen them cut up into pieces. You don't see them as people anymore. Wow. And this starts at two. So you're like two, yeah. three, four, and they're bonding with you. Yeah. And, and, and this is happening between you. And, and this is so interesting that you say that because parents of autistic children often report that in like th- these young children, two, three, four, they can go into such hysterical fits of torment, mm. uncontrollable, like sleep night terrors. Yeah. And the parents feel helpless. Mm. And I, it makes you wonder, like, is your experience not so far from what other autistic children are re- going through i would imagine that due to the nature of what the demons are trying to achieve like i said with weaponizing uh human minds to their own benefit i would say something similar any kind of trauma that separates that makes the control of the body and control of the mind impossible so and that break um is requires a lot of trauma Yes. Yes, it does. And, and, and folks, this is something else that I need to point out, you know, because a lot of you listen to this podcast and you've tracked how, you know, with MK Ultra and other projects like that, they have created physical traumas to people. And um, also we've talked about satanic ritual abuse rituals done in the physical world where people are traumatized and they dissociate to survive that trauma. Uh, but one of the things that I've noticed, and, and this is an expanded with younger generations, and, and right now I'm talking to Benjamin, he's a younger generation, he's not 60 years old. Um, no. They have really upped what they do with children in the spirit world where they are taking children and traumatizing them through spiritual means and sometimes synthetic means through the spirit world using artificial intelligence and new technologies of you know things I can't really describe. Uh, to create trauma and and shatter mm. people's souls without physical evidence of it. Now, mm. that's just for that. I want to continue with your story now, Benjamin, because moving forward, two, three, four, five, going into young childhood, talk about the dynamic between you, your family, and 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 this world as as the bonds go deeper. Yeah. So one of the things that would happen is that one of these uh, female demons would become my caretaker. And so they would come with me wherever I went. Mm. And so I had an imaginary friend that I would introduce to my parents and they would freak out because the the things that I was describing her that we did together, like eating people and, you know, going different places and going up in spaceships and whatnot. Um, this was really, really traumatic for my parents. Um, and like, I need to state now that I get along really well with my parents right now. Like 
a lot of waters passed under the bridge and we've really got a good relationship now. But at the time, they just didn't know what to do with me. They, they were at their wits end. They were, they were convinced, you know, is this a demon spawn? Is this, you know, is he okay? What kind of savantism has he got? So the, the diagnosis, I didn't get diagnosed until I was 16. So the first 16 years of my life were a confusing mess to my family. They didn't know what I was. They didn't know what I was doing. They didn't know why I was doing the things in the way that I was doing. Um, But I would be describing these horrendous things as though they were completely normal parts of my fantasy world. Um, And they were very, very troubled. Um, And they went to extraordinary lengths to try and get to the bottom of it. You know, changing my diet, changing my changing things all around you know has he got allergies is he, has he got sensitivities um and then it's it's just kind of like when my sort of extrasensory perception started kicking in and i started be, being able to read their minds and whatnot that really freaked them out um so the, di- the dynamic of my home life, uh, living at home and with my younger siblings was strained, I, I would say, put, would put it lightly, for the whole time that I lived there. Um, I think once they had a t- diagnosis, they kind of just said, well, that's the answer, and then just left me to my own devices, essentially. That... You know, as long as they didn't know what it was, as long as there was some way that they thought they could fix it, they were, they were trying very hard. But once they had an answer, once they realised that there was nothing that really could be done about it, it was just a case of like, oh, we'll, we'll look after the other two. <laughs> so what was your behaviour like as a child with autism relating? Uh, controlling. Uh, uh, I was always right. Um, I one of the things was I hated physical affection. I hated um, being called pet names. If my mum called me darling, I would correct her. I was like, "That's not my name. You know my name," and all that kind of stuff. Anything that wasn't robotically functional to my mind was instantly rejected. And so uh, my mother got postpartum depression and so things were very strained. My dad was struggling with work and all that kind of stuff. So the backdrop of all of this is, you know, family dysfunction, exasperate, exasperated by a child that has mental illness issues, um, leading to other children playing up and feeling neglected or, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, people got frustrated. There was lots of yelling. People would, would start fights, and so I would start fighting back. But because I didn't have the human empathy, I would fight to injure and break bones 
and knock people unconscious. And so, yeah, from an early age, I would see, um, you know, fights would get way out of hand. Um, I'd, I'd have cops called on me, that kind of stuff. And, and in my head, I had no idea why people were, weren't complying to what I needed. I had, to, I had to have things a certain way, and if they didn't do it that way, I, I need let them know that I wasn't happy with them. And when they reacted in a way that I didn't like, I just built them up. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for the honesty. Well, I, yeah. I, I love it. I love it, Benjamin. I, I love sitting there talking. Folks, there's a glorious story here because I'm talking to yeah. Benjamin. He is not autistic now. So, so no. we're going back into a world that he was delivered from. We're going to get to that. But mm. this is the outward. This is what people meet and experience. You are yeah. having this radical other fat quote unquote fantasy world experience the whole time in the background yeah that no one understands one mm. the spirits are coming they're bonding with you they're mm -hmm. serving up human flesh wherever they're taking you they're, mm -hmm. they're dehumanizing you stealing your empathy and then okay tell me about mars let's just go there come on ben. Uh -huh. what's so that? so the um Early on in the process, I started identifying myself as this um, dragonoid uh, creature. Uh, I, one of the things that these demons told me that I was highborn, and so um, there is different species and subspecies of these aliens. And the, the more prominent your spikes in your horns were, the highborn you were. So I was this elaborate dragon thing. Um, and so we, I was tasked with, like you were saying, technologies in spaceships. I work primarily on energy harvesting, propulsion and weaponry. So working out ways to uh, make that more efficient based on the technology that we had. Uh, part of that process was harvesting these wild um, creatures uh, made up of energy that you would see dotted around the universe. Um, but these creatures did not always come willingly. And when they fought back, they fought back violently. Uh, one such occasion I remember is uh, yeah fighting these tentacled energy beings on Mars and uh, get the sense that they were intelligent but not sentient they had an almost animalistic behavior and so they didn't fight with guns or lasers or ships or anything like that. They would lunge at you and eat you alive. And so they, they, we would have, and they could travel through space as well. So you would have these fleet of ships 
flying into this cloud of monsters. And I would see ships get captured, boarded, and eaten out from the inside. Uh, I remember one time a ship I was on got boarded by these creatures and they were just running through their corridors, consuming the soldiers. I got on an escape pod and um, jettisoned out the side of the ship. And these things were just leaping out into space and grabbing hold and ripping the escape pods open and just eating the, the occupants one by one. And it was terrifying. I, I, I wasn't even supposed to be on the front lines. I was in engineering at that time. And to have these monsters rip your ship open when you're supposed to be off the front lines, when people are actually fighting down on the surface against these things, uh, was really, really, that was one of the more traumatic experiences that, like a lot of times, you know, when you, I would be off places in my sleep and I'd come back and I probably wouldn't remember a lot of what happened. But this was one time that it got so seared into my mind that, um, yeah, I couldn't shake that one. And so, yeah. But the interesting thing was that we use these creatures for our energy. So if you see, imagine a, uh, a UFO, like we had this design that was a horseshoe shape. Um, but you could imagine it being a saddle on one of these creatures. So these creatures had a elemental ability in the universe that they could travel within it um, with ease uh, to an extent where the technology we had couldn't. And they also emitted high amounts of energy. And so we would harness that energy. And so we would build the ships around these creatures and saddle them and ride like so you imagine like the the ship being a donut with all these decks in it and it being settled on this creature that was pure energy and it, it would it would push the ship and we would just be along for the ride so okay now let, let, let's just expand this out a little bit so so that we get a better understanding from the outsider's viewpoint now, this yeah. is the insider's viewpoint. You're experiencing this as reality yeah. um, after you've been initiated, for lack of better words. Now, mm. on this reality plane, you are a dragon creature. You're yeah. reptilian. You are highborn in this mm -hmm. world. You, you are experiencing this as a parallel existence to your earthly existence. Sometimes you're there in your sleep. Mm. You said that. Now, you weren't always there in your sleep. Sometimes you'd be there in the middle of the afternoon. What happened if you got pulled into one of these escapades in the middle of the afternoon? Oh, man. I, get, I got told this all the time from my family. They'd always say, where did you go? Because I, I would be sitting still and I'd be twitching and, and, and making sounds and all that kind of stuff. I was like, like my body was kind of reacting to it, but I was somewhere else. Wow. Yeah. So you would have physiological reactions and, and the, 
it was just strange to them. Now, when people are diagnosed with autism and they, you know, if I'm seeing someone sitting in a chair and twitching and doing all of that, I just think that's the condition. Mm. But you're telling me there was a parallel reality happening. Yeah. Yeah, I was off, I was off fighting or something. I was working on something. Um, and and yeah, you're obviously using my... your intelligence in this parallel reality because you yes. are in engineering. Yes. So my, my primary purpose was in the design of these horseshoe uh, spaceships. So creating the energy fields to contain both the ship and the, and the, and the creature. Um, different manifolds for collecting the energy um, emitted by the creature to actually be used to power the ship. Uh, so you might have a straight through uh, amplifier that fires a beam of energy from it as a weapon. You would also use it to deflect, to use it as rocket boost for short jumps. Uh, but the creatures had a natural ability to actually bend space to actually warp to different places. Uh, and so, and then other stuff that I was working on was uh, more efficient use of hand energy weapons. I work on a console that has synthesizer in front of me. Um, I would map out where, where I wanted things to, to go on a molecular level and then I'd see it materialize in front of me. Um, and then I'd put that piece into the ships. One of the things that um, I worked on quite extensively was the idea of uh, nano uh, metals for the, that could self-repair the ships uh, if they were damaged. So, uh, uh, and also cybernetics. So when we would abduct people, we would link them into our cybernetic network. Um, okay. Pause. All right. <laughs> Folks, let's explain something else, right? Many people that have been in abduction encounters and experiences, remember if they get their memories back at all. Alien greys, sometimes mm. they see Nordics, sometimes they see reptilians, sometimes mm. they see a collaboration, and oftentimes, they will also report seeing humans yeah. on the craft. And no one can figure out, well, we're beginning to figure it out more and more now with more and more people coming forward, people out of the secret space program, people out of this, people out of that, telling the role that they remember themselves playing. So mm. in this parallel reality mm -hmm. where you are this dragon creature, you are actually also involved in the abduction of humans on on planet or off planet? So it, it was an interesting process because it was almost like fishing. Um, you, ha you, you had to have some way in or some lure or some tick. You would have some light or some something like that that would catch someone's attention. And then, you know, if they chose to come aside, um, then, we would, then we would start the operation. Uh, generally, in regards to a mix of people on the ship, generally on the ship, you would have a one or two high fallen beings. So the Nordics or the giant humanoids. 
they would be high command. You would have middle management, which would be the dragonoids. Uh, and then you had the smooth skinned reptiles, which were a different class. Um, and the greys were essentially uh, probes, meat puppets that could be inhabited in remote control. That was for high danger missions. Um, other species that I saw were a bird race, so people with feathers. Um, I remember breaking into a facility and after having to bust one of those creatures out of a lab. Some government agency had caught them when they weren't supposed to. And so we went in and busted them out and killed all the people. And, but in terms of the, uh, sorry, <laughs> in terms of the uh, implants, one of the ones that I was working on was an intelligent interface between the ship and humans. So I would have, I had an implant that I had developed that was shaped like a drawing pin. So a long needle with a flat head. Uh, you would do an incision up here, peel back the jaw muscle and press the pin into the head. And so the, the thing was designed to sit flat on the skull and then you'd sit, stitch them back up um, and they, they might have a headache for a long time afterwards, but they won't be able to feel the implant because it's flush up against the skull and under the jaw muscle. And so they would be linked into our neural net and we would run tests to see if they were picking up signals. Now, this is the thing, right? You're talking to me, telling me about this. Now I'm on the other side of this thing. I've been solving this problem for people now for years. Daniel, why am I linked to these cosmic grids, cosmic artificial intelligence networks? <laughs> distributed ledgers tying my bondage into the rest of humanity. How did this happen to me? Because some kid from Australia worked <laughs> on an implant <laughs> and, and drilled it into your brain. Let me tell you something. You know, Benjamin, I, I love the fact that you're able to talk candidly about this. Yeah. Because, look, humanity has been recruited into its own um, uh, destruction, right? Yeah. By these evil entities and their agendas. And they're using parts of people, they're using hybrid counterparts. They're, they're using clones, you know, they, they mm. different terms. And, and in, in these manifestations, people are involved in all kinds of things that they don't even know, but yeah. you had some awareness of. And a massive thing is being built. I mean, they're trying. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, okay, let me just ask this, and I don't know if you know the answer to this. Okay, if, if you got a person, put that implant inside of their head, and they had a headache, woke up, you know, had a headache, so I don't even know what happened last night, I just have a headache now, feel like I might have gotten hit by some witchcraft. Like, if they actually opened their physical head, would they find it, or is it more like a spiritual or ethereal object embedded in them at that point that exists on another plane yeah yeah i'm i'm not sure okay. is the is the honest answer yes uh, like i said when you are disintegrated into the spirit realm everything feels real yes everything feels tangible and 
one of the crazy things about autism is you can't actually distinguish between the two. So the idea behind it would be like, the only thing I would say to that is that my family would see me twitching at my desk or in my chair or pacing up and down. So that would suggest that I was doing it ethereally. That's the only clue that I would have that as to whether I was there in the body or not. So, but as for the artifacts themselves, I don't know, I, they weren't made out of metal, so they wouldn't pick, pick them up on a metal detector. <laughs> so, so, so Benjamin, not, not, not now, tell me, mm. okay. You're going through life. Mm. Right? On one side of the bale, you're always right. You're creating strife. You're mm. breaking bones. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I, I can't understand why these people don't bend to my needs. Will. Yeah. Will. <laughs> Very good. Um, on the other side, you know, let's harness the energy creature. This, and then finally at 16, you are diagnosed with autism. Mm. And now your family uh, kind of backs off and leaves you to your own devices. H how do things go for you from that point? Um, it's, it's hard because, excuse me, in all of this, you are actually keenly aware of your need for human interaction. Mm. You cannot act upon it. You cannot understand it, but you're keenly aware. So to suddenly not have people's attention actually is painful. So that's, that's one take, one takeaway you have to bear in mind is that in the midst of all this, there is still something fundamentally human about the person who actually feels things and actually does yearn for connection and can recognize the difference between having it and not having it, but doesn't understand how to regain it. Wow. And so for me, being the highborn marker that I am, I was then drawn into various cults. Wow. So from, from about the age of 16, I started hanging out with outwardly Christian people that were struggling with different things. And a lot of them were on a, you know, on a whole spectrum of whether they actually understood what they were in or not. But I was drawn to these people because they gave me attention. And there was something innate in me that understood that I needed that. And so, yeah, I was gone all hours and I was hanging out with people. You know, we would go way out in the, out in the bush camping and fishing and whatnot, you know, trying to be genuine, but also trying to genuinely convert me to whatever they were thinking. But it was never always these weird fringe groups because part of that 
that overlay is that you can't have proper real connection with people that might take you out of the collective. And the collective would be that reptilian group that you're yeah. involved in on the yeah. other side of the veil. Yeah. Folks, let me tell you something. I am talking with Benjamin Brody and he was healed of autism. Mm -hmm. But we are not going to get to that part of the story today. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem. We're out of time. Yeah. So this is what I'm going to tell all of you. You're going to have to <laughs> wait for part two of Benjamin yeah. Brody to get the rest of the story. And we're going to pick <laughs> up right here in the middle of this massive inconvenience. Quite, quite frankly put, obscene mm. cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, be, to be continued. So Benjamin Brody, for now, I want to say thank you for your time and for sharing and opening up on your life with us. We're going to have you back mm. real soon. No, thanks so much for having me and thanks for letting me share my story. And I hope, I hope it all made sense to everyone. <laughs> well, if it didn't, you can always press rewind and start from the beginning. Folks, that's it. <laughs> we are going to see you next time on Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Until then, God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. This podcast is a production of Bride Ministries International. Visit our website at brideministriesinternational.com to enjoy the Bride Ministries Church, the Bride Ministries Institute, free resources, and to support us financially.